There is an ancient Roman city in modern-day Syria known as Dura Europis. And in the 1920s, there were these archaeologists working there, and they uncovered a series of crude frescoes, these wall paintings, on one of the walls of a home, walls that were surrounding a bathing pool. And these frescoes, they depicted a number of scenes. One was two figures out on some water while their friends were in a boat watching. On another scene, there was a woman next to a well. And another scene, there was a man carrying a lamb over his shoulders. On another wall, there were some women approaching a tomb. And as they uncovered this, the archaeologists began to realize they had uncovered the baptistry of what is now the oldest known church in the world. Almost 2,000 years before they had discovered that, in the darkness of an early Easter morning dawn, lamplight would have been illuminating each of those frescoes on the wall. And new Christians would have kneeled in that bathing pool, completely naked, that bathing pool now becoming a baptistry. Of course, the men and the women, they would have been separated doing this at different times. But one by one, each of these new converts would then publicly affirm their faith in Christ and then renounce Satan and his demons before then being submerged in this cold baptistry waters three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then after that being submerged, they would come out and they were given a white robe and their foreheads were anointed with oil as a sign of their now new membership in God's royal priesthood. And then they would take communion for the very first time. And this same baptism process for new converts, it was repeated at that same time of year, each year on Easter morning after several weeks of preparation and fasting. Now, our baptism rituals today are quite a bit different than that, aren't they? I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever been to a nude baptism That's not this kind of church. We are a different kind of Baptist, but not that different. But 2,000 years have passed, and there is still one fundamental thing that has not changed. The Christian life begins really symbolized there in the waters of baptism, waters in which we face two very uncomfortable realities, the reality of evil and death in us and in our world. And there in those baptismal waters, we are essentially making this audacious claim that neither one of those things, evil or death, get to have the final word in our life. This morning, we're in our third week with Paul and his letter to the Romans. And throughout our reading of Romans, we have been asking, remember, what is the gospel? What is this good news that Paul says 
early on, has power for our salvation. And by this point, we have already begun to discover that there are some real significant differences in the gospel as Paul understood it and the gospel as American Christianity tends to teach it. And so the first week we looked at what Paul describes as the righteousness of God. And we talked about how God's, quote, righteousness isn't determined by following some divine legal code that God must abide by. And it's not even just about God being morally perfect. In fact, it's actually a description of God's relationship towards us. That's how it was used throughout the Old Testament and how Paul is often using it. In other words, God's righteousness is not about this requirement that God has and then follows to dole out punishment, or what's sometimes called retributive justice, where there must be punishment given for a crime. That's not actually how God works, nor is it how God calls us to work. Instead of retributive justice, God's righteousness is restorative justice, where we are being restored and held in relationship, even despite our actions and sometimes despite our inactions, despite the power of death and evil that wants to work its way through our lives. God's justice and the kind of justice that God then calls God's people to embody is restorative justice, not retributive justice. And we're invited to then trust that, to, quote, believe in God's unrelenting, ever-present love towards us that's holding us in relationship within God's own self. That's how I described it two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about how Paul's personal experience of that love through his own conversion story really shaped his thinking and how it has been also mysteriously demonstrated through Christ's love for us, uh, that even while we were still sinners, while we're still ignoring and sometimes pushing against that love of God at work in the world, Christ was willing to come and live among us and show us a different way. And part of believing in the gospel, as Paul puts it, is learning to stop pushing against the power of God's love at work in the world and start to live as Jesus did in the flow of that love towards the world. That was last week. And this week, Paul now is starting to talk more about how that works and connect it all to our baptism. Because there is something in our baptism and in that act that teaches us about the implications of all of this good news. In our baptism, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it moves from this sign out there that we recognize of God's love to now something that we are participating in. We move from an observer of the mystery to saying we want to participate in the mystery of the gospel. And that's a really critical shift for us and for Paul. It's part of why I call Paul a mystic, because mystics are those who move past believing to encounter and embodying and living in that love. And this is where the real power of our faith actually comes from. It's where the deep spirituality of Christianity actually is, a spirituality and and power that many people find lacking in American Christianity and its churches today, but they are longing for it and looking for it in other places. Because you see, for Paul, the gospel, the good news, 
is not just simply about what we believe that took place in Christ. The good news is that the Christ reality, this reality of God's restorative love and the work that it wants to do in the world and the work that it wants to do in us is something that we can participate in. That's part of the good news, that it's a reality that we can live into. Or to use some really nerdy theological language for you, Paul has what's called a participatory soteriology. You got that? That might be a little bit more than you bargained for on a Sunday morning. You're not in class, I know. But that's really just a fancy theological way of saying that for Paul, salvation is something that happens as we participate in the very life of God, as we participate in the power of Christ at work in our world, or as Jesus often described it, as we participate in what he calls the kingdom of God. They're talking about the same thing. Now, this is some really heady stuff, I know. So to help get your imaginations around this, I want to invite you to think about a time when you went to a concert. Maybe it was your fifth grader's first band concert. Maybe you got to go see Hamilton live. There was a lot of listening to Hamilton on the way to Tennessee and back. Maybe you've been to the symphony. Maybe you've been to see U2, whatever it was. Think about going to a live concert. And, you know, when you go to a concert, it's one thing to go to live music and sort of be this passive listener to this music that's happening kind of around you. And you think, well, that's really interesting. That's kind of nice. And that's probably sometimes been your experience at some concerts. It's still sort of exterior to you, though, right? But it's a very different thing to start to get caught up in the music, isn't it? And to letting that music start to move you and work inside of you and even consume you in some ways. It's a very different experience of that live music. And sometimes when that really happens and you have this powerful experience at a live concert, it almost leaves this lasting energy in you that you walk away with from a concert. Maybe an energy that you even carry into the rest of your week. But you know, there's actually even, it's a whole other thing to go from that to becoming the musician. When you're the musician, you start to become part of the music itself. You start to actually get intimately connected with the composer because now you're the one who that composer's music is starting to flow through you. And it's not affecting just you, but it's affecting other people around you. That's participatory soteriology. We once heard some music in Jesus. We were taught about it in VBS, maybe, and we thought that was interesting. But then there was another time when that music that we encountered started to move us in some way, and something in us wanted more of that. And maybe we eventually said, you know what, we want to become musicians ourselves so that that music can start to flow through us as well. And as we learn that, we start to become more and more like Jesus. This is for Paul what he's trying to get at. For Paul, the Christian message isn't just about knowing the right things. It's about participating in something. 
for Paul, it, it isn't just about being correct. It's really about being connected. It, it's not just about being perfect and pure. It's actually about being in love and living in love. And do you hear just how different that is from a simple formula of cosmic debt and payment that American Christianity often wants to teach? In fact, this may be some of the most powerful and profound contribution of all of Paul's writings that we've simply neglected or we've missed whenever we've turned salvation into being rescued from some divine cosmic punishment. That's really a warping of the gospel. Because when the gospel becomes just a simple cosmic equation, you get what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I once heard a, a, someone describe a friend of theirs from high school who would say, well, truth be told, I like to sin, and God likes to forgive sin, so we make a pretty good pair. <laughs> well, that's cheap grace. It's formulaic Christianity, and it's actually exactly what Paul is warning us against here in Romans chapter 6, where he writes, don't you know, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were participating in something, he writes. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, we might live a new kind of life, death and resurrection. See, in our baptism, we're recognizing that salvation is about participating. It's about participating in the same reality that Jesus was participating in. It's about letting one way of just being in this world die off so that another way of being in this world can start to live in us and through us. Of course, if you've been at that very long, it's a whole lot easier said than done, isn't it? In fact, Martin Luther once described baptism as drown, the drowning of the old self, but then he was known to say that that old sinful self seems to be a mighty good swimmer. <laughs> and that, that's part of the problem, isn't it? That's why it's even sometimes really hard to believe that all of this is more than a fairy tale. Even after our baptism, it seems like sin and death just seems to have so much power over us and over our world. I don't know about you, but, you know, since I was baptized as a young child, I'm pretty sure I've sinned at least two or three times. <laughs> you all can laugh. Maybe, maybe you haven't done it quite as much as I have. I don't know. The truth is, though, isn't it, that no matter how hard we seem to try, I... I still get short with my kids, and I get irritable with my spouse, and I don't do the things I want to do. I'm not as loving as I'd like to be. I have a hard time being generous the way I want to be because the honest truth is that there is greed that still wants to live its way out in me. There is envy that still wants to get a hold of my heart. There is pride that this fragile, needy ego of mine is always dealing with because death is still trying to be at work in me. And guess what? Paul, if you go on to read in chapter 7, he says the same thing. He knows that sin and death, they're still trying to claim us. 
He talks about it at length in chapter 7. I don't do what I want to do, Paul writes. And the very thing I want to be do, want to do, I, I, I don't seem to be able to do. And the stuff I don't want to do, I keep on doing. He seems to know just as well as you and I just how hard and screwed up we can all be despite our best intentions, despite how much we try. But the good news that I think Paul's trying to tell us is that these things no longer get to define who we are. And that's a really profound difference. They no longer define us, and we don't have to let them be as much as the shame of doing them wants to tell us we have to let them be. You know, when we start to let our sin define us, it's a whole lot like a resurrected person crawling back into their tomb and lying back down in their former grave because shame tells them that's where they belong. But Paul says that we've been buried with Christ. If we have, we've also been raised with him, which means then that your sin no longer gets to define you. It's really not who you are. Your past mistakes, they do not define you. And even your present seemingly unending brokenness that just comes out, it doesn't get to define you either. Your own struggles, your own darkness, they are there, but they do not get to define who you are, and they don't get to set who you're going to be. The power of sin and death no longer get to have claim over your own life. So get up out of the tomb because you've been raised with Christ, Paul's saying. You are in Christ. One identity has been put to death. A new identity has been risen. This is who we are. Rachel Held Evans, in in her book, she writes, you know, baptism, it reminds us There's no ladder to holiness to climb, no self-improvement plan to follow. It's just death and resurrection over and over again, day after day. God reaches down into the deepest graves within us, and that same power that raised Jesus from the dead grabs a hold of us and saves us from our pride and our apathy, and our fear, and the prejudices still in us, and the anger in us, and the hurt in us, and the despair that wants to take over us. In our baptism, we stand before all of those things that want to lay claim on us, that want to define us, that want to possess our identity. We stand spiritually naked and vulnerable and unashamed before all those demons, those impulses, those sins, those failures, those empty sail pitches and those screwy labels that we have. And we say to them in the most exposed and vulnerable way, I have been claimed by God. And I am a beloved child of God, and I denounce any power or anything else that tries to tell me otherwise. I denounce those. Surrounded by a series of crude frescoes in an ancient Roman home, just before sunrise... Our ancestors acted out the mysterious truth of Christian identity. 
we are a people who stand totally exposed before evil and death. And we declare them powerless against the love of God and the work that it wants to do in our life and through our life. This is the gospel. May you know its power for your own salvation. Amen.